I'm Kyle. And I'm Ben. And this is Edicts on Edicts. A podcast about Emily Dickinson. But now she fucks. Yes. Uh, and I guess in this episode she she does offer a blowjob to death? <laughs> yes, yeah, she does. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I'm going to put that in the fucks category. I, can I know. Tick that, <laughs> that off our list for the episode. I guess <laughs> she did it. I guess this is like the culmination of everyone being very weirdly horny at the beginning of that sermon with death and then Emily like actually try you know actually tries I've got some people coming over tomorrow for a dinner party and when they ask me what I was doing yesterday I'm gonna be like I was watching Emily Dickinson offer a blowjob to death played by Wiz Khalifa (laughs) no I'm not gonna qualify it I'm just gonna you know they don't even know about Dickinson the tv show they'll be like what What weird slash fiction, like, hole in the internet are you going to? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Oh, man. Um, um, what's, all the right. name of the, what's the name of the episode, then? We're on episode so this nine was episode nine, and it's called Faith is a Fine Invention. I think that the episode name is very on the nose for this episode, maybe. <laughs> yes. A lot can be unpacked just from that. But, um, oh yeah, yeah. But do you want to like maybe summarize the episode for the listeners? Yeah. So this this episode starts with is it even worth calling it foreshadowing? It it just feels like the most heavy handed sermon about how we must practice death in our lives. When I first watched the episode, I actually thought that Ben had died because like Emily is sitting in church and like seeing these flashbacks. Of Ben, but actually, yeah. that's not what's happened. Instead, we spend the entire episode sort of seeing the fallout of Emily and Ben's relationship as he gets sick. We also see a solar eclipse. Yes, we see yeah, the eclipse. Lavinia sharing her talents in a way, in more ways than one. Sharing, yes. her, sharing her talents. Yeah, and, the, <laughs> the of that. Um, and then we see Sue. Getting ready for her new life. Yeah. Getting married. Getting prepared to get married. Yeah. I mean, there's kind of three three plot lines. Yeah. There's Emily dealing with the with Ben's the impending death. Death. Yeah. Also, the questions of faith that Mm -hmm. arise up around that. Mm -hmm. Um, There's Sue preparing for her wedding and Mm -hmm. finding out she's pregnant. Yes. Uh, and then there's Lavinia with her love life and her mm-hmm. art, I guess. And then the eclipse is like this sort of centerpiece of yeah, almost the like entire crumb, really, of the episode. Isn't yeah. It? it almost feels like a, when I watched it, it felt like a centerpiece of the show because they go around and they show all the different characters in that moment. Yeah. And it is like a celebration of the Amherst that they have built. Yeah. Minus Mr. Dickinson, notably. Yes. Who has gone the entire episode. That's true. We don't see him, do we? I think he's the yeah. only main character that doesn't appear. Yeah. I'm correct, but I think that's right. If we take those three like um, different plot lines. Those plots, yeah. Uh, shall we just start discussing the biggest one, I guess, would be... Sure. Because this is, this is like Dickinson, the TV show, taking on 
religion, which is a big facet of Emily's life, but not in the like. She sort of struggles with it her entire life. Yeah. And the thing that I said I wanted to talk to you about, if we're just going to dive in, yeah, is yeah. This, this centerpiece at Mount Holyoke. Yes. Yeah, which so is this like f- the flashback of her? What's the so just for the listeners, like what is Mount Holyoke? Yeah. What's the flashback so, to? Mount Holyoke was like a seminary school for for women at this time. Um, it actually has become, I believe, one of the seven sisters. I should check that, but it's like a, a all women's college um, now. But at right. the time, it was for like continuing education for women and was basically as far as a woman could go to school at that time yeah Yeah. emily went there for one year and it seems like she really hated it in every account that i've read but she during this time is confronted with you know the idea of has she accepted god and let god into her heart and this becomes like the center like a, a big central question of Emily Dickinson's life is like what role does religion yeah, I mean, play for her? Yeah, yeah, so like the experience she has at at mm-hmm. school really mm-hmm. are like for the for the real life Emily Dickinson are really a key experience in her life, aren't they? Because she yes. continues to look back on them and reflect on them in mm-hmm. her poetry and in her letters mm-hmm. um, throughout her life, thinking back to that time in school, and yes. she clearly hates hate being there um, or dislike it. I don't know that sometimes in her letters, I think she says some positive things about learning and about being at school to learn. But Um, it's, it's funny because, and I, so this is me reading my like Dickinson biography, mm. but one of the things that they talk about is like at this time was the beginning of like standardization of education yeah and she found herself really frustrated with that because a lot of the texts that they were supposed to be reading she's like i've already read these why am i reading this again because she had had freedom when she was younger and now all of a sudden they've like standardized curriculum for what women what is acceptable for women and she really hated that I mean, she was ahead of the curve. Like, I think mm. the, the TV show Dickinson gives Mr. Dickinson a bad rap in many ways. Mm. But I mean, like, whatever you want to say, the, the real life Mr. Dickinson did give his daughter, mm-hmm. his daughters, a bit more intellectual freedom than they probably would have had, right? Elsewhere, you know, like they were fairly liberal, really, as yes. a family. Mr. Dickinson it's... has that going for him, and sh- and Emily has that going for her, you know. Right. There's just a weird sort of push and pull between like giving them parameters in which to explore, but also like being incredibly angry when they push against those parameters. Yeah. Oh, Mr. Dickinson. Yeah. Well, I think that's the thing, isn't it? Like Emily, mm. that's partly what defines the whole of Emily Dickinson's existence in real life, which is that she is, she's born into a time when things are radically changing for women anyway, mm-hmm. um, or beginning to change radically anyway. And she's kind of at the very forefront of that. So it's it's very difficult for her. You know, no wonder she found a lot of things so frustrating. Right. Like one of the the larger points that I wanted to make about this, and we can come back to it when we finally, finally discuss A Quiet Passion. Mm. But like 
this this Mount Holyoke incident, I've come across it in like every bit of Emily Dickinson that we've encountered or that I've read, with yeah. the exception of Wild Nights, it's not in there. Right. Um, but like the way it's framed, I always find to be very interesting in the biography that I read. The way it's framed is like this moment of rebellion on her part. Mm-mm. And it's she says, or like a classmate is quoted as remembering Emily saying when she refuses to stand up, I thought it more queer to lie with like a winking nudge nudge, like, oh, she's such a rebel. Mm-hmm. Whereas Dickinson does it in this way of like, this is a big struggle for her. Yeah, um, almost like she she's not rebelling, she's just at a loss, like her principles yeah. tell her not to lie. Right. Um, but she is kind of forlorn in a way. There's a mm. kind of, you know, the way that Haley Steinfeld portrays her in this episode during those moments is that she's kind of lost or, or, con- yeah. or confused or, or innocent, really, you know? Like, like, she's like she wishes. Make, yeah, like she's being forced to make a decision about something mm. she's ignorant of or, or hasn't experienced yet. You know, and the idea that like she almost she wishes she wishes she had that, like she wishes she could feel it. She was like, I would know if I felt it, right? Well, I think that does reflect the real life Emily Dickinson, Mm. who I genuinely feel did want to know God and did want to know the the feeling of faith and wanted to have that kind of revelation. Yeah, um, and just struggled throughout her life. I think sometimes she felt she did get some some experience, some mm. kind of spirit. But sometimes I think she struggled with that, you know? And I think, and again, we can talk about this when we actually get to it, but that's how A Quiet Passion starts. It starts mm. with this moment. And it is yes. framed as like, Emily Dickinson will spend her life alone and struggling with this forever. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's really interesting to see this moment as like very formative for her. But it's interesting, isn't it? Because like um a quiet passion does start with this moment, but then mm. Dickinson has taken nine episodes yeah. to, to get us to this place, you know? Mm-hmm. Um and I think the reason for that is because in this storyline with the death of Ben, uh Emily is finally forced to confront death right that's the real thing yes. and it's this confrontation with death which is spurring her to finally take the question of faith seriously because perhaps prior to this like i think mike i've always as we've been watching all these episodes my criticism has always been of the character of emily who i kind of yes. dislike really right because she's immature and she is kind of spoiled really mm-hmm. in my opinion um and what strikes me about this whole thing is like when she finally moving on a bit from the Mount Holyoke section, mm-hmm. but is when she, the, you know, this episode kind of bookends with the first one. And in the first one, she meets death and has that conversation with him. Right. right. Yes. About becoming immortal. Yeah. And it's very like mm-hmm. romantic and she mm. it's death telling her how special she is and all this kind of stuff. But that's all her fantasy, right? Yes. Like the the show's not telling us she literally met with death. It's it's her right. fantasy. And in her fantasy, mm. death is telling her, like, 
you're going to be so special you're going to be immortal like and you and i have a special rapport yeah when you write about death it's because you get me in a way that no one else does right and she believes that about herself in the first mm-hmm. episode that's what she believes about herself but what i really liked about this is that when ben is dying she goes to meet with death again mm-hmm. and it's that kind of realization of oh this isn't a romantic relationship i'm having with death yeah you know? and i'm not special yeah and i'm not special like i don't i don't understand this i don't have a special insight yeah into this um and it's like we had a discussion in one of our other podcast episodes uh, about how poets can articulate things better sometimes, but that doesn't necessarily mm. mean they actually have better understanding or a more intense feeling, True. right? Um, and it's like Emily's realizing, oh, this whole time I've been thinking about death and I've been writing about death and everything, but that's just been like a girl's Right, it's a death. very naive understanding of death. Yeah. And, and I what think, I think, go ahead. No, no, please, you, you go ahead. Well, I was like, and what I think is interesting is like, they haven't quite drawn the parallel explicitly, but like, Sue, who has lost everyone in her life and like picks herself up and carries on, versus like Emily, who is in the context of the show, like encountering death for the first time. Well, I think it's a very direct parallel because actually what this episode confronts us Mm. with is one character dying and another character coming into existence, right? Right. Because Ben is dying and Sue is going to have a baby and it will be new life. Mm -hmm. And I think like this goes back to like Sue and Emily's conflict because Emily has never really experienced death and she has this romanticized idea about it. Mm-hmm. Um, and she thinks that these things like these questions of death and like art and everything are very important mm-hmm. but sue who is an equally intelligent woman has lost her whole family to illness and death yes and now she wants a family of her own mm-hmm. you know to to sue the priority and the thing that's important is her family and i think this episode shows her reaction to her realization of pregnancy is kind of a positive one. Oh, it, is, it absolutely is. She's, she's looking forward to this. And I think that's because to her, she understands the value of it more than Emily does, maybe. Well, because she knows what it is to lose. And this is, as we say, in the context of the show, Emily's first encounter with death. In her life, it isn't. Um, there was stuff that happened when she was younger, where she like mm. witnessed a cousin dying that she was very close to. And that seems yeah. to have been another big moment in her life. But like yeah. within the context of the show and within the character that they have built of Emily in this season, it is that like final maturity. And I did go back and watch the pilot recently. And it is very interesting to like one discover that this character is in her mid twenties, which is insane she feels like she's she feels like she's 18 at most but also to like witness they have matured her a lot over the course of the show and yeah i mean she is more reserved and more refined Mm. definitely Mm. in Mm -hmm. her demeanor and in her speech isn't she just alone like if you think about it and when we when we were watching and she she has that moment where she runs into or actually before she runs into george where, mm. like, she's flirting with Ben. 
we made yeah. a comment about how it feels like it's very, you know, high school young intellectuals trying to like get off with each other. Yeah. And I wonder if that isn't, you know, an intentional sort of framing because it is this like naive fantasy relationship where they're like, we can get married and we can do all the things that we want to do. Yeah, I mean, I, I think you're right because I, I do think that Ben and Emily are almost as bad as each other, really. You know, <laughs> like they're kind of, they're both insulated and yeah. a little bit, yeah, naive, definitely. Mm -hmm. um, and the way that they're grabbing onto each other like two shipwreck survivors, you know, <laughs> they're, they're desperately like, you're like me, you're the only other person like me, like we have to, you know, stick we together. To stick together, yeah. yeah. Um, but do they really, would they really, like the reality of them being, in inverted commas, not married, mm. you know? like, I think even their idea of like, oh, we could get married without getting married and have this kind of like chaste artistic relationship. Yeah. It's like, are they really thinking about the practicalities of that? Is that. Is this is even what they like, what is good want. for them? Yeah. yeah. Or is it just this, they both have this sort of, you know, escapist ideal of what they can do. And it is like, I wonder if it doesn't also extend from queerness in a way to bring that into the conversation. Cause we haven't talked about the fact that they're both probably not necessarily gay, but at least like queer yeah, characters. Yes. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And the like repression that comes from that. That's the, that's what I mean. I think they're both intensely lonely mm -hmm. um, and that's what draws them together. And that's not yeah. to diminish their relationship. Like it's still, it's still a very important friendship and a and a romance and a and a romance of a kind, you know. Yes. But but also like, is part of the tragedy of Ben's death that mm. actually like he they never get to be, go beyond that point and really find out what could have been. Yeah, whether it works mm. or not. I was just thinking like, um, but really like, one of the things I didn't i don't know so like ben's death is really it the whole romance thing does come into it but really it is about this this question of faith at the end of the day isn't it yeah i was going to ask you about this oh what do you think what were you going to ask no just because you are you know a person who practices faith yeah and yeah. i do but of a different sort i suppose as in like not christian but I was curious as to how you just felt about all this. Yeah, I mean, it's a difficult one. I, I have <laughs> to, like, I, so for me personally, in my own private life, like, I've been really struggling with my faith mm. lately because life mm -hmm. has dealt me some tough hands in, mm -hmm. in recent times. And, um, yeah, I've been really questioning, do I even really believe anymore? Like, what's the, mm. what's the point, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I think... I'm I'm glad that the show is dealing with questions of faith and mm -hmm. it's very jaded of me and cynical, but I think it's because a lot of media that deals with queer people or deals with those kind of themes is often quite bad at actually grappling with faith mm -hmm. with some notable mm -hmm. exceptions. But, mm -hmm. uh, and also I feel like the target audience that this, this show in particular is being made for 
sounds very judgmental of me, but wouldn't really be interested in asking questions about faith, really. And I've said it before how, like, to me, a big part of Emily Dickinson is faith. Like, she maybe wasn't a Christian in the traditional sense. Maybe she didn't believe in God. Maybe she was agnostic. Um, but, but, you know, a third of her poetry yes. is her grappling with that. Um, and in the show so far, I feel like this version of Emily has not demonstrated even a modicum, really, of interest in asking those kind of questions, you know? She's really big yeah. on feminism. She's really big on wanting to be artistic. She's really big on her rights and on being progressive in a worldly mm-hmm. sense. But she doesn't really seem interested in thinking about theology or ethics mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. or like or just spirituality. The, yeah, the role that religion would have played. Because this is, in American history, like this is um, a period of like, big religious revivals yeah and like i think i remember reading that the real emily was very big on these religious revivals and but but she wasn't like she didn't love them she she really struggled with them similar to how she struggles with this in the episode right going back to your question about what i think about it like um Mm -hmm. so we have a we have in in the character of maggie the the Mm -hmm. housekeeper um we have someone who's like a positive role model of faith uh, in that she doesn't pretend to have all the answers, um, but she is there to comfort and guide however she can. And also, I think it's good to see Emily like doing what real people do in faith. Like even people who are Christian or even people who have faith, I think often when confronted with things like death, which are just so monolithically horrible, mm-hmm. uh, all you can do is throw yourself to your knees and pray, you know? Yeah, it's, this is a slight tangent, but like, I, I listened to this one bilingual podcast that is like, they read the news in both English and Japanese, um, and I turned it on yesterday, and instead of reading the news, they discussed how one of the hosts, like, mothers had just passed away, mm. and it did become this, like, discussion about what do you do in these moments in the aftermath of, like, somebody else's death? And like, what systems do we have to sort of deal with it? Because a lot of a lot of this particular era that we are in doesn't have that clear cut role that like religion used to play. Like we've come to be very skeptical about it. Well, it's the whole joke about the Californian funeral. Um, what is the what is the joke about the Californian <laughs> funeral? <laughs> so like, well, so like, um, I can't remember. Indeed, I can't remember the actual joke that makes it funny but like it's the whole concept of like um how in louisiana people have these big open casket funerals with wakes and everything you know Mm -hmm. and people see the body but yes in california it's like no one wants to talk about death right like death is so taboo that when someone (laughs) dies people don't even want to say they died you know interesting they say like they passed away they passed on etc and there's no open casket funerals like the bodies always are like uh cremated you know mm. um and it's this cultural d- divide um yeah and you see it like in the modern world it's the idea that we 
people now are scared of death and don't have the coping mechanisms to deal with death. Um, right. And it's become taboo even really to talk about it. So we live our lives pretending we're not going to die. And when someone does die, it's almost embarrassing. Yeah. Like we don't want to confront it for them. We don't want to discuss it. We just sort of like dance around it and speak in euphemisms. Yeah. It's almost like we're sorry to put other people through the embarrassment of having to deal with our grief. Oof. Yeah. Right. So like grief is something to be embarrassed about. Yeah. Like grief is something shameful that we, you know, and I think in the modern world, in the Western modern world, like that's where we're at in some ways, like we do Mm. think that way, but I don't think that that's how people in Amherst thought back then. Like I, I think they probably were still in the period of having open casket funerals and, and yeah. we see a corpse during that Mount Holyoke sequence. Yeah. Like we see, and that's used to basically get the last few holdouts into, you know, saying that they have felt God in their lives. Yeah. I mean, so this is the, um, this is the thing, isn't it? Cause like, uh, mm-hmm. Emily's being confronted with a double choice. Like the first mm-hmm. time round, she's confronted with death. And it's used by her teacher to say, like, look, this is death. Like, look how terrible this is. You should accept Jesus into your life because otherwise you will have no hope. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, Because in Christianity, we believe that without Jesus, death is true death. Right. Like once Mm -hmm. you die, that's it. You will never come back. Um, But with faith, you can Mm -hmm. return from death. But then, and the first time Emily's confronted with this, she doesn't, she doesn't kind of, not give in isn't the right word, but she doesn't. Right, she doesn't. Um, she doesn't allow herself to be almost, to let fear drive her to that choice, you know? Right. She doesn't allow fear to like push her. Into professing firing. something she doesn't believe in. Exactly. Yeah. Um, but this time, when she's confronted with death, Mm-hmm. the death of Ben, she does get on her knees and pray. Right. Do you think that is her accepting? I don't think that's framed as think... her like accepting religion. Yeah. No, I think what it is, is it's framed as her opening yes. lines of communication. Mm-hmm. Like it... that willingness to try. Well, no, because she was willing before. Like she says how she wants to she wants that experience, right? Like she right. was open to it. But I think it's more of the like what she's kind of she's kind of saying maybe what I think doesn't matter, you know? I wonder if it isn't proximity as well. Like we don't see her feeling particularly close to any of these women at Mount Holyoke. Yeah. But the proximity of Ben and like the importance of him to her could sort of, you know, drive her to be more open to that. Yeah, I think so. Mm. I think that anyway, the whole thing in the episode is just that she's really being confronted with death properly for the first time. And it's the shattering, shattering of her illusions around that. There's Um, like naive ideals. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's kind of Emily losing her innocence really. And this is why Mm -hmm. um, one thing I noticed in the episode I thought was really relevant was when she and Ben are both quoting William Blake's Songs mm-hmm. of Innocence and Experience. Mm-hmm. That poetry is all about going through that process 
of losing your childlike romantic ideas and coming into a greater understanding of the world, including death, you know? Yeah. Um, and William Blake has a lot of parallels with Emily. Yes. You know, like they're two, in some ways, they're kind of two, how can I say, like kindred spirits. Okay. My, my knowledge of Blake is pretty limited. Okay, well, um, like really quickly, uh, he <laughs> lived in London all his life and he never left London. Um, oh, wow. He was a mystic poet um, who yes. had radical ideas about religion and sensuality. Um, oh. He had like an open relationship uh, with, he and his wife had like an open relationship and he experienced visions. Um, I did know this, yeah. yeah. Uh, and he wrote loads of different things, but his most famous work is Songs of Innocence and Songs of Experience. But I thought it was really interesting. She's she and Ben are quoting that, and I just think it's it's very on the nose. <laughs> you know, she's going from innocence to experience, and experience yeah. is changing her perspective on things like death and faith and all these kind of things. Yeah, and I think we'll see. You know, next episode is the finale, and I think we see kind of the culmination of that arc. So that's one of the three storylines really and mm. i think also we kind of covered sue and her pregnancy sue. yeah yes also just really... no i was just going to say before we move on i just wanted to shout out um darlene hunt who plays maggie for writing the episode yeah that's good fascinating job. isn't it yeah <laughs> good job giving yourself like really good scenes <laughs> yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah i thought the right i mean how did you think the actual writing in terms of like dialogue and things how did you mm. think the episode stood up Let's let's review Darlene's work. <laughs> wow. Okay. Let's dive in. I mean, I think, like I was saying, there were points where I feel like the actors, especially, um, I forget his actual character's name, but Amthurst, the like sexy bad boy of Amthurst. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, George. No, not in, George. Um, not George. I can't remember. A Amthurst is fine. We'll Amthurst. Yeah. <laughs> like, him and Lavinia, like, they have very good ways of going back and forth, and I quite liked their bantery scenes together, because he's just so gross. He's like, oh, I thought you were complimenting my sketch technique. Yeah, you sketched your tits really well. <laughs> <laughs> I know, that's great. <laughs> I think, honestly, like, the script is pretty solid, and there's real moments of, like, hitting character beats pretty hard. Like, you have that confrontation between um, Emily and Mrs. Dickinson after she's brought Ben back mm, and she has yeah. him in the house and they just have this like very restrained but very hurtful conversation. Yeah, it's, it is very psychically violent, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. And like what it means to just sort of have that conveyed very quickly, especially after we've seen the eclipse. And we see Mrs. Dickinson be the only character to not look at it. I felt um, with regards to the writing that there was particularly mm. some scenes that were really, like there were some iffy scenes, which I didn't think. All of the scenes between Emily and Ben felt a bit robotic or not robotic. But like, <laughs> I, I wasn't convinced by Kind of their... clumsy. Yeah, clumsy is the right word. We've seen um, them have chemistry and I do agree like it's not quite, there yeah, in this episode. Yeah, I feel like it might have just been like 
the writing was a little bit um but uh some of the scenes were really good like emily and death uh okay for me really well before Uh, we move on i do want to discuss that scene because when i first watched it i was so thrown by it yeah very briefly what do you get out of this scene like it is that confrontation of like her naive idea of death at the start of the show versus like this merciless cold version that we see here i think the thing that threw me is the like attempting to give death a blowjob which <laughs> i i was honestly just like wait what is where did this come from like we haven't seen emily be a particularly sexually aggressive character yeah i mean i think it's I think it's because she's responding to something she doesn't understand with something she does. Okay. Um, and she understands sex to some degree. So I think mm. she's kind of like, uh, and this also, it, yeah. And also I think it shows her naivety about evil. Cause, cause she's like, Oh, death is so bad. Like he's a misogynist who wants to use women. And if I give him mm. that, then he will give me what I want, you know? Yeah. Um, when in reality, like that's a complete misunderstanding of mm-hmm. death. Like it's death isn't something that feminism can defeat, you know. No. Um, and it's also not something that can be appeased with with any kind of other evil, I guess. Or not evil is a strong word, but I'm not sure I'm yeah. explaining myself very well. But I, I think I see. Like the idea is that like. Because I, when you'd first mentioned like Emily confronting evil, I was like, death isn't actually evil. That's kind of the whole takeaway of that scene is that he just doesn't like death doesn't care. It's she, everywhere. Yeah, but I think that she thinks, oh, yes, it's like evil, and her comprehension of evil is fundamentally one of misogyny. I think, and also she has a Emily throughout the show has the habit of like retreating into fantasy whenever things get difficult from the circus to death. And I think this is one where she retreats into fantasy, expecting some kind of like reprieve. And instead she, she just gets confronted with a reality. Yeah. It's like no, Mm. no amount of fantasy, no amount of Mm. romantic fantasy can, can shield you from this. Like art is powerless in the face of death. And that's what he says, isn't it? He says, I'm, what does he say? He says, I'm, inescapable or something he's like i'm everywhere i'm in everything no one no one gets away no one gets away yeah something like that no one understands me not even you that's a good scene (laughs) yeah no so i think that's it's pretty good and it does it serves Mm. the purpose so i thought the writing had some good moments in the episode yeah yeah Um, oh we have our third storyline i was gonna say yes uh which is lavinia lavinia Um, and the and naked art. selfies. Yeah. So like in the previous episode, she'd had this journey, right? Where she had learned not to rely on others to depict her or to like define mm. her, right? And she'd learned yes. to sketch herself instead of yes. asking the portrait man to come and draw her with her cat. Her. Yeah. She instead did a sketch of herself in front of the mirror. And that was mm-hmm. like really empowering. I think. Yeah. Really I remember we that. both really loved that. Mm. Um. And then today, during the episode, she gave her lover boy the naked sketch of herself, which I think is like a direct parallel for what? Sending nudes? Oh, for sure. 100%. 
But then she he shares it with her friends, basically, doesn't he? Yes. And then they all make fun of her during art class. Mm-hmm. What does she do in response? So the episode gives us a fake out where we think she's about to set all of her drawings on fire, which, you know, is something we have seen before and is like yeah. a, a trope that we're quite familiar with. But she doesn't. And instead, she goes back to her art classroom, which I guess... Amherst doesn't have locks. Um, <laughs> and also it's like well lit in that classroom late at night. It's fine. But like, <laughs> and so she takes the pictures that she has drawn of herself naked and she shares them. She like puts them on everybody's canvases. Yeah, she doesn't. She, she pins them to the easels. Yeah, I think you're right. Like that was a really good subversion of a trope. Yeah, I, I was like, when I first watched it, I was like, oh God, like we're going to watch her like, destroy this thing that means something to her and it totally got me because like the character type that we associate with Lavinia is just this sort of like put upon Mm. defeated character type yeah and yet we see her be like actually this is more important to me than what people say about me and I think that is like a really good subversion I mean, I don't actually know that much about Lavinia in real life. I wondered if when you were doing Mm. all your biographical Mm. research, you learned anything (laughs) about her. There's not a lot. Most of what I have read has framed her as like the woman who saves Emily Dickinson's work, Um, which is, you know, not the most fair or interesting. If I was only remembered after my death for like doing something that preserved one of my siblings' legacies, Mm -hmm. I would really be rolling in my grave. (laughs) I love my siblings, but also if they were like, oh yeah, like he was the brother of Tim, like the great artist, or Julie, like the The famous reality TV star or whatever. Or that. Whatever it would be. (laughs) I would be like, oh, like history's only going to remember me. Which is really petty, but also I think like siblings do feel that way about each other sometimes. Yeah, especially like the type of person that we, you know, is typified by like the Lavinia. Um, I don't know. I think like, you know, from what I have encountered, she does legitimately love her sister, obviously. And again, as we get closer to winding down, the different versions of Lavinia that we've encountered in these three different, you know, we have Dickens in the show. We have A Quiet Passion, Mm. and then we have Wild Nights with Emily. I think that Wild Nights with Emily's portrayal is perhaps, like, the cruelest in a way. Yeah. Because she's, like, played as a joke, and she's played as, like, a kooky, wild, out-there, like, spinster woman. Well, there's some suggestion of mental disability, really, Mm -hmm. in Mm -hmm. Wild Nights with Emily, when it comes to Lavinia, you know? Yes. Kind of like, look at her, she's kind of off her rocker as we would say yeah um but i think that's a shame because i think i like how in dickinson they're saying that because the whole as i said before like the whole dickinson family is shown to be quite artistic in in different ways you know or quite avant-garde um Mm -hmm. and like emily's legacy is the one that survives down to us because she was the most prolific and she was recognized, mm-hmm. you know, but maybe Lavinia was like a reasonably talented artist and it's yeah. just her paintings never, or her drawings never were transcended or yeah, whatever it is, whatever the reason being. 
Because, like, you had picked up very early on in the show that, like, actually Lavinia is very creative in what yeah, she's it, doing. Yeah, it was and, her knitting. Yeah, that's... <laughs> when she's sitting there being like, wait, have I been knitting all day? Yeah. And this does feel like a, a culmination of that particular thread of Lavinia, which is, like, we don't see it nowadays, but she probably did have a an inner life that was rich and fulfilling and creative and expressive. Yeah, and I think that that's one of the reasons I like Lavinia, because she's she's in yeah. every woman, you know? Yeah, like, um, she is. Emily's a leg- living legend, you know? <laughs> she's, she's like, you know, not living, but yeah, she's a, she, in the in show. In the context of the show, yeah. Yeah, she's like a living legend, and um, whereas Lavinia is like all of us, like she's yeah. not outwardly exceptional. She doesn't make a point <laughs> of her intelligence, you know? Emily spends a lot of time making a point telling everyone how smart she is you know yeah um yeah. whereas lavinia doesn't do that she she just quietly goes about her own inner life mm. as you said and i think that's that's what most of us do you know it's a have you seen amadeus the movie no i haven't oh my god go watch amadeus immediately really it's so good it's not the movie you think it is oh my god okay. now because it's it's entirely about like Mozart being this like transcendent genius and Salieri being just the guy who like works really hard. Yeah. And like, oh, gosh, it's Narrative not, it's, it's not quite as like benevolent as the Lavinia Emily stuff is in this. Mm. Like they are pitted as rivals, but it's a similar sort of, you know, narrative of what it means to just be a person versus a genius. But I think what makes the Dickinson version interesting is that it's like still empowering for Lavinia and it's still meaningful for her. Yes, yeah. And I think in that fake out of we think she's going to burn these and instead she steps into her power is, I don't know, it's funny to pit it or not pit it, but like see it juxtaposed with Emily at like her lowest point. Mm, yes. And Lavinia at her like most confident. Well, I think that's deliberate in some ways. Yes. Oh, for sure, for sure. Suffice to say, I like the whole Lavinia storyline. I like where the trajectory has gone. Um, I honestly think Lavinia is my favorite character in the entire show. Yeah, I really like her as well. I think I relate to her more than Mm. I relate to Emily. Although I think now that Emily is having this maturing experience mm-hmm. and now that she's kind of grappling with more important things maybe if there's a season two which i think there is going to be a season two they were sure. in production i don't know if they what has happened with covid um but they were yeah. in production i think i might like emily more as things go on and as we get further into her life story between this and the next episode there is like a very deliberate like maturation of Emily that makes me more intrigued of that next season. Yes. Yeah. But we'll save that for the finale discussion. Okay, so that's the basically talking about the story and we've talked about the writing a little bit. Um, yes. Was there anything about like the production of the episode that stood out to you? I mean, again, I don't know what this trend is. For me, it bothers me when they do nighttime scenes because they clearly... There's things called like the shutter angle of the camera, mm. which basically... The way cameras used to work is that, like, 
you know, it would, there'd be a thing going in front of the lens to mm. sort of let light in and then shut it off. Um, but now that everything's digital, it's a little bit different. But basically, in order to boost the light of dark scenes, it looks like they just sort of crank up the shutter angle, which means they don't have that thing coming and shutting off the light as often. Right. So you end up with this like very strange looking motion blur to me. And it drives me crazy because like in this one, it's happening during the very dramatic Ben hears the fly scene. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't, I get the feeling sometimes that part of the reason why the show seems so amateurish and that's kind of yeah. a harsh word but it is partly to do with the editing and partly to do with the direction in some ways because mm. sometimes i feel like the scenes we're not getting the most out of the scenes that we could be yeah getting like if i had the script i think i would read the script and how it would be in my mind's eye mm -hmm. would be maybe better mm -hmm. than what what's on the screen just from in terms mm -hmm. of like how i would picture it and mm -hmm. the characters interactions and the, where the focus would be in some ways but also you're right like sometimes it's just things like the angle or the what's included in the frame and what's not and yeah but it is like and i've seen cinematographers do this where they just sort of it could be a time limit it could be just a personal preference that they have but to do that sort of that cranking up the shutter angle to let more light in. But I'm like, mm. all these things are probably filmed on a set. They should have set lighting. Just boost that a little bit. But I guess if you want to maintain darkness, like the thing with the thing with a TV show like this is that it will have like a set um, aesthetic and it will have a set sort of workflow. Yeah. And that maybe somebody set this as a like, this is how we do these scenes. And so your DP is kind of strapped to that. And it, it is just a weird, distracting choice that, like in these very dramatic moments, because it happened basically anytime there's a night scene. And I just sit there like, why? It makes it feel like it's cheap digital and it doesn't have to be that way. Is that all the way through then, even back to like the yep. Wild Nights episode when they had all the yes. nighttime stuff? I believe so. I definitely made reference to it in one of the earlier night scenes, maybe even in the pilot where she goes oh, to maybe. run to death. And I remember just being like, Oh, turn on a few more lights. <laughs> don't, <laughs> don't do this. <laughs> but it is, it is hard. Cause we, I don't know what like the production workflow is. I don't know how much time they have. The schedule can be really tight. And yeah. that's just a quick way of, of keeping things moving because ultimately you just got to deal with time with these things yeah no i i can understand that i mean but, but you're right and then like you the whole, to... go ahead go ahead i was gonna say like you're right the whole thing does feel like it's filmed on a set and that there's mm. there is some kind of like there's some limitation on what's feasible yeah i guess rushed is kind of the right word actually sometimes it feels a little rushed because then i'll say like you'll have that but then you'll also have that eclipse sequence which i actually think technically is pretty great Mm -hmm. like it's interesting to watch it's good to see all those characters you have each character sort of experiencing the eclipse through different means like and that Lavinia shot, shot. Different... Yeah, yeah they're all shot from different angles and there's like crane shots there's like big wide shots of of amherst like it's a really cool sequence 
I, I found myself wondering, like, how can that sequence come together pretty well? And then you have these other moments where I'm just sort of distracted by probably how little time they had to make this happen. Yep, <laughs> that's yeah. that's me talking about technical stuff this time. No, no, I, like I wish I had something more to add to it. Like, <laughs> it's quite it's good to have your insights. Like, I because for me, like, there's a whole bunch of stuff I would never realize or mm. think about. I just passively absorb, you know. Um, <laughs> but that's yeah. I mean, it has been funny, sort of reflecting on how much of my time I've dedicated to like movies. And being just like, <laughs> I guess I guess this this particular discussion is the culmination of all of that. <laughs> you know, like a shout shout out to my friend Alice, who mm. once I asked like I asked her if she'd watched if she'd listened to our podcast. And she said, yeah. yeah, like I really I wish that like I could hear more I could hear Kyle talk more about technical stuff. You know? The, the <laughs> bit of the podcast that she finds the most interesting is you talking about like oh, the that's so in and outs. She doesn't care about Emily Dickinson. I was like, it's about Emily Dickinson. She doesn't care. She's like, who? <laughs> who are we talking about? No, okay, well, I'll have to be a bit more like proactive from now on for the next two episodes. <laughs> well, should we read the poem? Oh, yeah, let's do, do some. Like? Let's look at the poems. Let's look at the poems. Okay. So I'll do Faith is a Fine Invention first, as it is four lines. Okay. Faith is a fine invention for gentlemen who see but microscopes are prudent in an emergency. That's That's it. it. That's it. That's it. That's the poem. I mean, (laughs) yeah, I have actually heard that one before. Um, Yeah. I've read that one before as well, actually, in my Mabel Loomis Todd. (laughs) In your Mabel Loomis Todd. (laughs) (laughs) Barb. Let me just... uh, flagellate. true villain. I'll flagellate myself later. Um, I quite like that poem, but it is a bit tongue-in-cheek, isn't it? Oh, for sure. She's This is Emily being, like, sitting at the dinner table, just thinking, like, chuckling to herself and pulling out a piece of paper, being like, "This no one's going to read this one in a hundred years, but it's still pretty funny. <laughs> I mean, so that seems a little bit at odds with the episode, though, because, like, the poem seems to suggest that Emily's saying, like, faith is fine, but really in an emergency, you need to rely on science, right? That's my takeaway from it, yep. Uh, but whereas the episode seems to be saying there's a limit on what a person can do, and yeah. sometimes you just have to... Hand yourself over. Yeah. Because she doesn't. Because Emily doesn't try and understand Ben's death in any scientific or intellectual way, does she? Like, she... No. It is just that, like, complete, you know loss of what knowing what to do so the the poem that ends the episode is just actually it's only the first line of the poem i heard a fly buzz when i died the stillness in the room was like the stillness in the air between the heaves of storm the eyes around had wrung them dry and breaths were gathering firm for that last onset, when the king be witnessed in the room. I willed my keepsakes, signed away, what portion of me be assignable. And then it was, there interposed a fly, with blue, uncertain, stumbling buzz, 
between the light and me. And then the windows failed, and then I could not see to see. Hmm. Yeah, it's a heavy one. I've definitely, that's one of her more famous poems. No, I'm just saying I'm reading it for the first time now after listening to you. Yeah. Um, yeah, there's a lot of elements. It's heavy. It's a big one. Do you think it's about death? I mean, it doesn't. Oh, absolutely. Well, it does say I... when I died in the first line. <laughs> it's funny because, like, a lot of the poems that we have read where, you know, death has been mentioned, like, because I could not stop for death or um, the it was not death for I stood up poem, I believe we've discussed. Mm, mm. They're both about, you know, not encountering death in this way. And this is the first poem that is like, I think the speaker of the poem is dead at the end of it. Yeah, I think that's right, right? So, like, looking at the poem now, mm -hmm. um, that's talking about the stillness and silence in the room, right? And I wonder yeah. if that's the room where either the room that they die in, um, mm. and then it says the eyes around had wrung them dry, so, like, all the... Maybe that's all the all people the that witnesses. cried. Yeah. All the, all the loved ones who've, yeah, emptied their eyes, basically, through crying. Yeah. Uh, and breaths were gathering firm for that last onset when the king be witnessed in the room. That that line gets me. Like just the three, the the breaths were gathering firm for that last onset when the king be witnessed in the room. I mean, the king is a reference to Christ, right? To Christ. What it means to actually witness somebody's death, that last onset, that last onset of breathing and like the other people around holding their breath as it happens. Yeah, it makes me think of, um, in some of Anne Rice's work, mm -hmm. there's a section in her story about the Mayfair witches, um, which is like her grand family epic about this family of psychics and stuff. Um, mm -hmm. And there's one of the, it's, a, it's as per standard for Anne Rice's work, loads of the characters have these kind of like long philosophical asides where they talk <laughs> about like, life and death and beauty mm. and all these kind of mm -hmm. stuff um and there's one one bit where one character says to the other like uh one of them's questioning the belief in the supernatural i think mm -hmm. and the other character says uh if you have any doubt of the existence of the supernatural you need only see the moment of someone's death mm. Uh, to believe in the soul. Uh, it's interesting because, like, I, I had alluded to this earlier in the episode when we were discussing, but, like, the, the, the earlier encounter that Emily has with death is actually being by her cousin's bedside when her cousin dies. And she's, yeah. like, I think she's, like, 13 or 14 when this happens. And it mm. is this, like, incredibly transformative event i think she she talks about going to leaving her family and going to boston for like a month or two to be by herself like there was a family member that she was staying with and it's funny that the show has chosen to fixate on ben and that encounter with death which happens without her and actually 
like in her real life, according to the biography that I read, they think that she probably found out about Ben dying through reading his obituary in the newspaper. Yeah, because actually he didn't live in Amherst, did he? No. He moved away and she had a correspondence with him by letter. So she -hmm. would have received the obituary yeah probably before she would receive any correspondence saying that he'd passed away if yep. anyone did write to her because it may have been that no one would have written to her anyway that's true nobody knew um, and there was nobody potentially yeah i mean that's scary in itself i mean that's <sighs> you know that's how the world yep. used to be. i mean when i was reading about how when hp lovecraft died like loads of people that he'd been having correspondence with because he was one of the most prolific writers of the, mm-hmm. the 20th century in terms of letters and loads of people he was writing to, they just didn't know he died and he just stopped communicating with them. Wow. You know, but actually he just, he had died because they didn't even know he was sick. Like, and just so many of his relationships were in words on, on those yeah. letters. Um, to go back to the yes. poem. Yes. <laughs> um, and I willed my keepsake, signed away, what portion of me be assignable? And then it was there interposed a fly. That moment of like practicality in the poem, I think is really interesting. Mm. The like, there's all this talk of like the king be witnessed in the room, like the heaves of storm. And then there's like, by the way, I wrote a will, gave all my stuff away. Yeah, right. That's, that's true. <laughs> And what portion of me be assignable, like yeah. bits of me that will can be given to others. That will okay. persist in some way. And then it was there interposed a fly with blue uncertain stumbling buzz between the light and me. And then the windows failed. And then I could not see to see. That's scary. It's really good. It's terrifying. Like actually the 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 hair on my arms is standing up at this moment. Because, you know, they're all waiting for the king, for Christ. Mm -hmm. But this person, like, doesn't see that, you know? Yeah. And I think this this poem, even though we only see the first line in the show, speaks to that push and pull that she feels between religious faith and, like... Doubt. Yes. Because Because that that is the word, really, isn't it? It's doubt, basically. That is what it is. It's faith... And doubt, yeah. that is the word. And also the idea that this fly, like this tiny thing, mm. could be interposed between the light and, and the person who's dying. Yeah. And then the windows failed. Like the... the, the just the light goes. Yeah. And I could not see to see. And I guess that means like I couldn't see to see in the room see the king maybe see Mm, or to see heaven or to see a greater purpose to this yeah and i think it's here too that her like punctuation really serves her like the fact that it it ends on the dash like makes it so much more unsettling and i can't help but feel like the dashes are like when someone's dying and their breath comes breathing even yeah. Yeah. Like when someone is breathing unevenly and it's kind of in between breaths mm-hmm. saying these things. And the idea that, like, there is no 
real rhythm. Like sometimes when she puts the dashes, there is a rhythm to it. And with this one, it is not there. Wow. Yeah. I feel like I've read this before and yet I haven't, you know, I used to be so dismissive of her work. And now I'm like. But one thing I will note is that in the TV show, Emily doesn't go into the room, right? No. Whereas in this poem, it, someone is in the room with their loved ones. I wonder if that, if that was the choice, the, you know, why they d- decided to end it with her on the floor outside the room rather than inside yeah. comforting him. Maybe mm. she was too scared to confront death. Well, that is the scene with Mrs. Dickinson, isn't it? Don't bring death into this house. Yeah. That warning. Yeah. And then just not that's what quite... done. Yeah. And not having the like fortitude, willpower, courage. The balls. I don't know. <laughs> or that. Or the <laughs> balls. <laughs> to to open that door. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think it does take balls in a, in yeah, a metaphorical sense, you know, to 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 stare death in the face. Because I think that's what, as I said before, like our whole culture, we're avoiding that now, and we do. We're so afraid of it. I'm terrified to die. Like I, I'm, I mm. have some degree of faith, and I'm still terrified to die. It's interesting i was listening to someone discuss these like buddhist practices about like corpse viewing mm. basically they just witness corpses in different states of like decomposition that's so and, like, grim. it is but also they and it's funny in the context of this poem but the person talked about how they'll do like a breathing exercise where they like exhale and just imagine that that is their last breath and what that would feel like and so it's interesting how important like that basic concept of breathing is to our idea of being alive because that is like with the exception of maybe the heartbeat like the most obvious mechanic of living well it's well it's it's, so it's it's very spiritually important like um Mm -hmm. just in terms of biblically the the the, breath of life yes the breath of life the ruach if you go back Mm. to the it's the Hebrew. Ruach um, mm. is like the breath of life, but that's the same word identically means the spirit, you know? Oh, wow. So it's like your breath is your spirit in, in many mm. ways, which actually weirdly chimes with uh, Zen teachings and Buddhist teachings. Yeah. I mean, in Taoism, it's a bit of a side thing here, but like we're always saying how breathing in is yin and breathing out is yang right Mm. Um, but actually breathing in then is the more creative thing you're being receptive you're taking life into yourself Sure, you're taking something into you Mm. Um, and then when you're breathing out you're you're pushing out into the world exerting yourself that's why it's so Mm. it's yang and then the whole cycle of life and death is yin and yang in and out that's amazing it is it's it's funny to the whole universe is in your breath basically <laughs> but it actually is you know it's, yeah. and that's yeah i mean we don't have to go into that now but it is something i've been thinking about a lot more given the current state of the world 
Well, breathing itself is almost yeah. a taboo thing now. Or the idea that, like, I don't know. We're, <laughs> it's like, we should just stop the episode and we can talk about this off the record. <laughs> but I was like, the concept of, like, breathing out something bad and, like, infecting somebody else with, like, the bad that is inside you. Oh, God. we I need to stop before I quit while we're ahead. Oh, no. Okay. We'll come back to that idea. <laughs> yeah. I can see where you're going with it, though. I mean, anybody can see where I'm going. <laughs> wear a um, mask. God damn it. <laughs> it's a shame that people can't wear masks for their ideas as well as their breath. Oh, shit. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like that's something that I want to tattoo on my body, but it will not make sense outside of this context. <laughs> um. That's what I've been thinking about lately, anyway. <laughs> oh, wow. It's a shame that people can't wear masks for their ideas. Mwah. Beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, to get back to this episode of Dickinson, <laughs> <laughs> how, many, how many loaves of bread are you going to give this car? loaves of bread? Yeah. Um, I'm feeling pretty positive coming out of this one. Like, it may not have been the funniest episode, but as far as ideas go, it's the most we've had to, like, chew on yeah, if we're yeah. going to go with loaves of bread. Um, I'm going to give it 7.5, leaning towards an 8. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I also love the payoff to Lavinia's storyline so much that I am going to be, yeah, more open to it. I think I agree with you um, yeah. on everything you said. and. Uh, I'm also going to give it seven loaves of bread. Nice. I'm not going to give it that 0.5. That half I loaf. I think that the episode had lots of great ideas, and there mm-hmm. was certain things that really paid off, but yeah. it just could have been more like... It, again, it's like the just the little things, like the editing and the... the hmm. Some of the scenes work and some don't, and the dialogue sometimes comes across slightly childish or or amateurish but generally like this is a good episode it's carrying us Mm. forwards in a way that's good i think the show itself has gotten better as we've been watching Um, absolutely i mean i feel like having gone back and watched the pilot like once you have the idea of where they're taking emily Mm. that first half gets a bit better but the second half is still like a marked improvement because she is being forced to like confront those things that are largely abstract at the beginning to her yeah and that makes it much more interesting to watch well great then um yeah good job dickinson team yeah we appreciate it Um, (laughs) it's pretty good we're enjoying it anyway i'm I'm still i'm paying my apple plus tv subscription so (laughs) Me too. What more can they ask, really? Yep. Uh, so we're going to watch the last episode next time, right? Yes. And then so we are at the we season will... finale. Yeah, um, which will be quite exciting to see where that goes. And then we will watch A Quiet Passion. Which um, I feel like you watched that a year ago and have not stopped talking about it since. Literally. Now that's like, well, I can't say anything about it, but yeah. Okay. okay, well, everyone, thank you very much for tuning in to listen to our podcast. Um, yes. And we hope that you will join us again next time. Um, if you've got any comments, suggestions, feedback, information, or legal issues. Um, <laughs> really want to open that Pandora's box? Okay. No. 
Um, <laughs> contact us at edix on edix, all lowercase, at gmail.com, or just post on our anchor site. I think there's a comment section. Uh, do have a look. Uh, and yes. until then, uh, take care. Wear a mask. Yeah, wear a mask. <laughs> Don't be a dumbass. Cool. All right. Bye.